Today's scripture is Philippians 1, 18 through 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Allison. Well, good morning again, everybody. My name's Sean. If I don't know you, the lead pastor, teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. If you are new, or honestly, you've been coming for a while, and we haven't met. I haven't said this in a grip, but I'll be out by the Connect desk. Come up and say hi, please. Uh, it's summertime. We don't got to break down after service. Centennial lets us keep our stuff up uh, over the summer for the most part. So, um, yeah, I'll just be kicking out in the lobby. Please come up and say hi if you haven't already. Um, if you aren't aware, we are going through the book of Philippians right now. And so I'm going to pray for us here in a second. But before I do, I just want to kind of give an apologetic for why we're doing that. We just got out of the book of Jonah. And when we're done with Philippians, we're going to go uh, through the book of Exodus. And as much as it would be awesome to spend crazy amounts of time on some of these books, uh, there's an account where uh, John Calvin spent a little over 60 sermons on the book of Job. Um, which would be grueling. Um, we try to figure out the best way to kind of go through it and, and navigate uh, how many weeks we should go through it. But we're going to be spending nine weeks, this is week two, in the book of Philippians. And what's really cool about that, why I bring that up is, um, I, I said last week, the book of Philippians is pretty relational, meaning Paul knows these people uh, in Philippi probably better than he knew the other people in some of the other letters he wrote. Uh, and, and because of that, it's a little messy, which is fine, but... Um, the elders for Redemption Peoria of the nine weeks will be preaching. You'll hear from all five elders of those nine weeks. Uh, and so it's kind of a cool that we're going to use this opportunity to, to kind of unearth what Philippians is about, uh, really honing in on what we feel like Philippians is reading to us. And so you'll see a lot of application, uh, but it's difficult. I'll just be honest with you guys. Going through Philippians, I was telling somebody between services, is really hard. The book of Philippians is different than uh, Romans or Titus or when we went through uh, Ephesians. It's just difficult. It doesn't feel like Paul is on one straight train of thought at all. So it's hard to see where he's connecting things. feels a little crazy at times. So we're trying to uh, do that, and I hope I can do that this morning. So let me pray for us, 
And then we'll jump into the text. I want to read verse 27 before we get into any, uh, anything else. Father, thanks uh, just for who you are. Thanks for giving us a Bible to read this morning, whether that be on uh, a screen or um, on paper. We really are grateful that we get to learn from you. There's a recognition that all of us this morning, we uh, decided to get up and get ready and gather together at Centennial High School for the purposes of worshiping you and for the purposes of hearing from you, but doing that together. And so... Um, as much as we could do that on our couch by ourselves, we get to now together um, have our faith be built up by the word of God. Uh, we get to be convicted together by the word of God. We get to be encouraged together by the word of God. And I pray, Spirit, you'd permeate this room uh, and do that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to start real quick just with uh, some trajectory stuff. Uh, a lot of you guys know that I was saved in high school in the charismatic world, which is the Assemblies of God at the time. And um, at first it was a small little church that don't no longer exists anymore called Faith Covenant. And um, eventually when that small church closed, and I am going to the assembly, this Assemblies of God church, there was something that happens within the charismatic world that wasn't really good for my soul. Um, and that is in the charismatic world, there's a lot of striving and a lot of fanaticism and, and just, and it's, there's, a, there's a lot of good in that. But for me personally, that being combined with the fact that, uh, I, I'm an athlete and was an athlete in high school. And, uh, there was a lot of like, just be all in for Jesus, go hard. And it was, so that was kind of the, the atmosphere of my early, uh, church life. Now combine that with the fact that I didn't know these things called church camps exist. Uh, I go to my first church camp and I find out something amazing. We're getting it in, okay? So we go up, we drive to California, go up a mountain, and we are like committing to never sin again. Nobody's going to have sex anymore. Everybody's just going to sing worship songs all day long. It's just all about, right? And so there's this fervor that we would go to camp and we'd make these great commitments. And there's a beauty and a, I think a, a goodness in that. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But what I come, came to find out was, you know, the school year starts the next year and like, and like, I'm looking at the people I went to camp with, I'm going like, where, what happened? Right? Like we all lost that as we went down the mountain. But the good news was there was this thing next summer called camp that we could go to and we get to do it all again. Right? And so I found that out. And what happens is eventually as I became an adult, um, there was something that began to form in me about running all for Jesus and being all in for Jesus that I wasn't taught that when I was a youth pastor, I, I tried to instill within a lot of the kids that I was discipling at the time. And, and that is, um, when it comes to following Jesus, I had to learn it wasn't necessarily a tenacity in moments of energy, but rather thoroughness. So there was a, being all about the things of Jesus was a um, all-encompassing way of life and not rather just like, a, I'm just going to go do this, be, I'm not this, 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 and this, or whatever it was. And the reason that that's big is because I think it's good for us to be reminded occasionally of what some of you who grew up in the church, and at least when I got saved into, was introduced into, of these camp moments. It's, it's good for our souls to be reminded, hey, listen, we forgot, we went down the mountain and we forgot our lives are supposed to be about Jesus. Everything we do is supposed to be about Jesus. Everything we say will be said before Jesus. In all of eternity, we will stand before him and we will be judged based on what we say according to Matthew. Our lives, according to verse 27, which in the preaching collective is all the, the teaching pastors get together to talk through, like, here's what I'm learning, here's what I'm thinking for this text. 
We talked about this text about 10 days ago, and Frank Switzer, the pastor of uh, Redemption Arcadia, he said verse 27 in chapter 1, he believes is the thesis of the entire book of Philippians. It, it is, encapsulates kind of what the book of Philippians is going at. And this is uh, verse 27. I'll unpack it when we get there kind of in a full force, but I just want you to hear this as just kind of a mantra. Verse 27 says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life should be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think through that for a second. Your life, the way you live, your manners... It, it should be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think eight or ten years ago, a guy named David Platt wrote a book called Radical. And it blew up on the Christian scene. Uh, I didn't read it. I, I read it last summer. Uh, and there's things I definitely disagree with in the, the book. But there's some really good stuff. And I think he nails it. I want to read a part from uh, Radical before we get into the full-fledged part of our text. Uh, it's a long quote. So I'm going to read it in two parts. The first part I'm going to read before we get into the text. And I'm going to read the second part as we're kind of in it. This is the first part from uh, David Platt's book, Radical. It says this, In the American dream where self reigns as king, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, to minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. Just stop right there. That first line that you can see. In the American dream where self reigns as king, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate uh, our assumptions and our desires. So, so here, here's the, the statement that he's putting in front of us right away. We could, because of the way we want to live, change the gospel. We can go to the lowest common denominator and make the gospel fit our lifestyle instead of vice versa. Goes on to say this. As a result, we desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. A materialistic world will not be won to Christ by a materialistic church. At the end of our life, we will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacation, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or even been more successful in the eyes of this world. Instead, we will wish we had, uh, we had given more of ourselves to, the, uh, to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. At the end there, he is stating something that I am afraid we know all too well, so well, we let it pass through our mind with ease. And that is this simple premise that Christians should be living far more than the world. At the end of our life, the only thing that's going to matter is that we lived for the end of our life. We're not going to look back and go, I wish I would have scrolled more on Facebook. We're not going to look back and wish I would have done this or that. The only thing is going to, that's going to matter is, I wish I would have lived for this moment more. Now we know that, but we've been lulled to sleep, y'all. We, we, we've been buy, drinking the Kool-Aid, buying into this, this gospel that, that's halfway in, halfway out. And we need to be reminded by the words of Paul that, listen, your life should be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I, I think um, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us avenues to do this. Now, I'm going to do my best to translate what I think Paul is saying here because 
uh, like I said in Philippians, there's not an easy thread to identify. So we're going to read through this, and I'm going to try to unearth how it all, I believe, does attach to verse 27. Okay? So let's read it. Let's start in verse 18. It says this. This is our text. If you've never been here before, it's just going to be a big Bible study, verse by verse. Yes, and I will rejoice. Sounds like it's out of nowhere. He just got talking, done talking about he doesn't care who preaches the gospel of Christ. As long as it's preached, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. And then he says, yes, I will rejoice. And now on the heels of that, at the back end of 18 says, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's the first thing. Let me translate, and then we're going to unpack this text, what he's saying here. I think the first thing for us to hang this on, verse 27, to see what a life worthy of the gospel needs to look like. A lot of us have forgotten this, but we have to change. Here's the first word we need to hear, our perspective. We have to change our perspective. Here's what I mean. If you were to flip to the end of your Bible and you were to go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation's already kind of weird if you don't understand what's going on, which is pretty much everyone. And as you get to Revelation chapter 6, you're going to see this bizarre verse in verse 11. Uh, up to this point, what's happening is the martyrs are crying out to God, saying, God, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to alleviate this? When are you going to make amends for what these people did to us? God, in response to all the people who've died for his name, this is his response in verse 11. Rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who are to be killed, even as you have been, should be completed also. This is weird. What God just said is, I'm not going to vindicate you yet because the amount of people that need to be vindicated, meaning die, who have died in my name, there's a certain amount of martyrs that need to die. I have a number in my mind of how many martyrs are to die. When that number is completed, then I will vindicate you. So this is crazy. What God is saying in this moment is, um, I, I know you're wondering what I'm doing, but I'm doing something, which means the, the writer of Paul here, or the writer of Philippians, which is Paul here, who is on his way to be beheaded, is one of the people who are a number in that big ticking, whatever it is. Like he's counting the numbers. Paul's one of those people, which means the suffering leading up to the prison, the imprisonment, was part of what God is doing. Which means the, 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 the suffering in the imprisonment, the imprisonment into the death was all part of God's plan because Paul was to be part of that number. Now here, here's why this is important. From Paul's perspective, as we read this, he seems to be cool with this thing. L listen, listen to this. Listen to how Paul's perspective is different. He knows God is doing something. And the, following Jesus, being all in, or living a life that's worthy of the manner of the gospel, is trusting that Jesus is doing something. He knows what he's doing. L listen to this. Again, just follow the thread. We won't go through the whole text again. Follow the thread. He starts with, I will rejoice. He's going to rejoice because he won't be put to shame. You can see this all in verse 19. He's not going to be put to shame. Uh, that's actually in verse 20. But, but listen, he's not going to be put to shame because of the prayers of the people of the church and the Holy Spirit together will bring his deliverance. So he's not going to be put to shame. He's rejoicing the fact that he will be delivered. But listen, deliverance in his mind is, you can see it here in verse uh, uh, 20, at the back end of 20, deliverance in his mind is life in deliverance here or deliverance in death. Either way, he's delivered. From Paul's perspective, his way of seeing suffering, his way of seeing imprisonment, his way of seeing his life matters in one way and one way only. You ready? Look at it. That Christ will be honored in my body. 
That his perspective is one that says, I don't care. It's not about prosperity. It's not about poverty. It's not about suffering or not suffering. I'm telling you, wherever this goes, I know I will be delivered. Christ will protect me. He's doing something. This is the back half of Platt's uh, radical quote. He says this, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. But in the end, Such risks finds its reward in Christ, and he is more than enough for us. God actually delights in exalting in our our inability. He intentionally puts his people in situations where they come face to face with their need for him. This is the unavoidable conclusion of Matthew 10. To everyone wanting to be safe, to have, I'm sorry, for everyone who wanting to have a safe, untroubled, comfortable life, free from danger, stay away from Christ. The danger in our lives will always increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. Hear me, our perspective is not that. The moment you're thrown off kilter, the moment something happens, you like, it's like that faith is gone. It's like the trust isn't there. But to live a life worthy of the manner of Christ is yes, to lament when things go bad, but to not be frustrated that they're not going the way that you wanted them to because it was never meant to go your way. And so to change our perspective is to go, whether in life or death, I know I'm going to be delivered. Now this actually leads to the second part, one of Paul's most famous verses. I said last week in each one of these sections, there's going to be a very well-known verse. And this is that well-known verse in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is, far, is more necessary on your account. So this is, again, one of those famous verses. And um, just to be clear what Paul is saying here, it can put it in a nutshell, he, he's saying, listen, if I was to die right now, which Paul almost acts like he gets to choose, which is a whole other conversation, but if I was to, to die right now, that would be amazing because I would be with Jesus. But it's actually pretty amazing that I get to stay here because I get to teach you about Jesus. So either way, it's a win-win, right? But what what I hear, and if I'm trying to translate Philippians and what he's doing in the context of all this, I think there's another word that comes to mind that I think we need to begin to elaborate on as we're processing a life worthy of the gospel. And if we're to, the first one is that we're to change our perspective. The next one is we need to train our motive. We need to train, and I use that word motive very intentionally. Motive being um, the reason you do something. It's where we get our word motivation from. For, For Paul, it's I'm set and I'm going in this direction. For whatever Christ is pushing me, that's the, I'm, I'm going. So let me give you an example of this. Um, a lot of you guys aren't aware of this, but I have an amazing fear of flying, okay? I hate flying. Uh, and there are times where I have to fly, whether it be for family reasons. Um, I would go like John Madden on the world and take a bus everywhere, but I can't do that. Um, and so I, I have to get on this plane, and I got to take off and hopefully land. Um, and, and, and here's what I do. And, and I want to hear this whole like, well, you just got to have faith. You know, you're more likely to be eaten by a shark while being struck by lightning. Great. Okay, cool. That's great for you, but we're still going to die. So I don't know what to tell you either way in a plane or being eaten by a shark while being struck by lightning. It's going to happen. So I, I, here's what I do before I get on a plane. I decide that I'm going to die. I, I make amends with the fact I'm going to die. Uh, you're laughing, but I make videos to my kids. 
Um, I'm like, let's just get this. Let's do this, right? Now, once I decide, like, I make the video, 16, Corbin, congratulations, today's your 17th birthday. I wish I could be there, but I died on a plane, okay? Um, Once I make amends with the fact that I'm going to die, I'm going to get on the plane. Whatever the motivation... It's fine. That motivation, whatever, if it's having to go do something for work or something for family, for whatever reason, right? I'm sitting on the, the middle of that exit seat, like not for comfort because I'm the first person out. It's a lot, never mind. It's a rabbit trail. But all that to say, I decide that I, I'm going to die. And because of that, I get on the plane. I don't love taking off and I don't love landing. But when I'm up there, I'm just kind of like, whatever. Like, and I'm, I go up to the pilot. It's like, dude, thanks. I thought I was going to die today. So thanks for getting me here, right? And, right? and like, I just assume I'm going to die. And because I assume I'm going to die, I'm able to step on the plane. Hear me. This is not just a perspective change, but this is looking at what's motivating me to step into that world. I think this is the ethos of what Paul is getting at here. Once you decide and you commit to the fact you're dead, you're dead. You're, you're trying to like kind of fly and not fly. You're trying to kind of like be safe and not be safe. And there's really no room for that. That's because of that, you're not flying. Once you decide you're going to die, once you decide that plane ain't landing, well, then you can, like everyone else, like they're expecting to land. You ain't expecting to land. You know you're going to die. And because of that, it's like freeing. Like I expect it. Hear me. Some of us have have, uh, forgotten that's the mantra. Some of us have forgotten, that, like, that's the mentality. The, the motivation behind what we do as Jesus drives us along is to go, my life was never mine in the first place. And for Christ to make the declaration to live as Christ and to die as gain is that the ethos of that. For, 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 for him, it's not, well, I want to live for Christ, and I also want to make sure I kind of get this. this we, I, I hear this sometimes, right? Like, I, I, yeah, I definitely want Christ to come back, but I want to be married first. Or I want Christ to come back and hear me. When Jesus returns, ain't nobody going, oh man, nobody's doing that. Unless you're not a believer in here. But if you're a believer in here, ain't nobody doing that, right? Everything, as you look into the face of Jesus, you will not wish you would have blank. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And to live that way is to make the declaration to live as Christ and to die as gain. That, that, that's some, there's something beyond that. There's something deep within that. Now, um, I want to give some like, tangible examples to what this means. Because I think this, uh, both changing our perspective and training our motive, as Titus 2 would say, that we're, the gospel, uh, the grace of Christ trains us, that we're to train us, to get us into that mindset, here's how I'm to live. Um, there are tangible ways for us to do this. The problem is, the next section of verses kind of made me stop before I gave this. So let me read this, and I'll explain what I mean before I give some of these examples. Um, this is what it says in verse 27, as we are reading already. So it said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, before this, he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you um, all for uh, your progress and your joys with me or in faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul makes a declaration, simple enough. I've decided between life and death, I'm gonna stay here with you. That's what he says. You're like, awesome, amazing. And then we get to verse 27. This is what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I've said that 10 times up to this point, and this is where we started. Let's unpack this real quick, because this is amazing. Uh, I would argue there are many times where Paul, uh, I'm reading a book by N.T. Wright right now called Paul, and it's just his life. It's pretty dense, but it's, it's a pretty good book. It goes through the narrative of Paul. And man, the more I'm reading about Paul's life, and his upbringing, and his ideas, 
I think he is comparable philosophically to the Plato's and the Aristotle's of the world. I think the stuff he writes in the New Testament is like crazy, crazy stuff. And this verse, I think, is really underestimated on, on what Paul is. So let me just kind of break this down. So verse 27, first of all, is something called a double entendre. Um, it means Paul is saying two things in one way, and one of them is kind of tongue-in-cheek. So here's, here's how I would flesh this out. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but Philippi, this little city of Philippi, is part of the Mesopotamia. And the Mesopotamia, right before Paul wrote this, became um, a place of Rome, became a, dear, a jurisdiction of Rome. It's the state of Rome. And because of that, all the people in Philippi became Roman citizens. They got to now take on all the privileges of being a Roman citizen. So now the laws they operate on are, are determined by what Rome says. The taxes they pay, all the, the due diligence that needs to go on with land, it all has to do with what Rome says. This is very similar to when Alaska and Hawaii in 1959 became a state. Before that, I think Alaska was part of Russia. I think for about 90 years it belonged to us, but was never officially a state. But when it eventually became a state in 1959, I hope I'm right on that, we bought it from like Russia for like $7 million, which is because athletes are paid more than that here right now. So we get this huge state of Alaska. All these people are in Alaska. They're now American citizens. Now what that means for them is even though most of them have never been to America before, even though most of them have never seen the Statue of Liberty, maybe they saw it on TV, they're not aware of all the customs. Matter of fact, they're closer to Canada than they should be with, uh, with America, the United States. And because of that, when they take on this this uh, Americanness. Now they're operating in a way that there is privilege, but their lives change a little bit. Paul knows that for these people. And so here's what he's doing. He knows that Philippi, like Alaska, has just become a Roman citizen or, or an American state. And because that's true, there are certain ways they must live now. And so when we read the language, listen to this again, let your manner of life. Um, it's a lot of words, but in Greek, it's only two words. And the, the main thrust of the word is poletai. It's a, it means citizen. It's where we get our word polity from. Paul's doing a double entendre here because he's saying this. You know what it's like that you were a people and then you became a Roman citizen. What did that mean for you? Man, your way of life changed. Where you paid taxes changed. What you were forced to even care about in certain things, it changed. And that is true of being a citizen of heaven. The way you understand that is also, so hear me. Your actions, as a matter of fact, the King James Version says your conversation should be worthy. The nitty gritty of all that you do is now to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. The NLT says it like this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Hear me, the declaration to change our perspective and to train our motives, all hinging on the fact that we are to be citizens now. We don't belong to the age of this world. We don't belong to the way that they operate, which leads us to some of these examples and why it's hard to go through these examples. Because for the most part, what I think I have found is lowest communal denominator, honestly. Because when we read this next text, look at this in verse 27, it says this, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So verse 28 is essentially saying as people who aren't believers look at you and they go, your way of life is different and maybe even persecute you or mock you or whatever it is there. That's, that's a sign. That's a sign that they aren't saved and you are. Okay. That's what he's saying in verse 28. But before that, he makes this declaration in the positive. 
This declaration that here's what you're doing. You're not just a citizen to the kingdom of God. You're citizens together for the kingdom of God. And Paul goes, says, in one mind, in one spirit, one body, we're doing this together. And he makes the declaration, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Yes and amen, this is good news. And when I read that, I had to stop. I had to go, I know Paul's saying that in a good way, but man, it, I, I gotta be honest, when I think of how this applies to us, I can only see the negative of it. Because the reality is what makes it so difficult for some of you to be radically obedient to Jesus. I mean, reading your Bible an hour a day, memorizing a book in the Bible, fasting for multiple days, actually opening your mouth and telling your neighbor or uh, the barista about Jesus is radical, is crazy. The reason it's so difficult for some of you guys to do that is because we have a lowest communal denominator. Together, we are not striving side by side for the gospel. Together, we are lollygagging side by side for the gospel. We are, we're treating this like it's any other part of our life and it's not all encompassing. So here we stand listening that our life together should be worthy of the gospel, but it's easy. It's so easy to think I'm good when I'm looking at all the other Christians and they're saying I'm good. That's so easy. And so it doesn't ask a lot from us. And when we step out of that paradigm, we're almost seen like ostracizing ourselves. That's a little bit much, don't you think? And so radical obedience and radical faithfulness is almost immediately swept off the table as we lollygag side by side for the gospel instead of striving. And so this list became difficult. And so I don't want to name a list. Let me just give you some examples of, of um, maybe to stir your affections, to maybe um, push you in the direction of what could radical obedience and radical faithfulness look like and how it's counter. Because if we're a citizen of the kingdom of, the, of, of, this, uh, of the kingdom of God, then we're not a citizen. Our allegiance is not in this world. So let me just give you some examples. I had all these lists of people that I want to address. I broke it down into gender. I broke it down into age. I broke it down into ethnicity, into socioeconomic group. And I thought that's going to take like two hours. So let me just fly through some examples. First, you parents. Let me just, by way of example, maybe this will stir some of your affections. Let me tell you how being a different, being different as a citizen in the kingdom of God is different than being uh, in the world. And again, I'm not going to address all those groups. I just want to address real quick parents, women, singles, and then I want to talk to everyone. Um, and I have stuff for, if you, you can ask me afterwards if, if you want to know what I had for some of the other people, for men and husbands and all that. Um, first, you parents, listen, here's what this looks different. Our children are not to be taught that sports is more important than the relationship with God. Fortnite is not more important than the relationship with God. Being YouTube famous is not more important than the relationship with God. So time will show whether or not that's true. How much time you make your child or have your child spend in those areas instead of developing a relationship with God, hear me, that will show your true citizenship. It will. And that's not me like drawing a line. I'm saying you need to do whatever you want with that. However you define that, you need to wrestle with that. Furthermore, parents, having the coolest clothes, the newest shoes, and the best gear is not more important than teaching them to give people who don't have those things those things. Hear me. Pray often at the dinner table that God would provide for your family ways to serve the marginalized. God, give us opportunities as a family to give away. Women, um, I'll say this carefully. Let me say everything, Okay. We're in dangerous territory here. Let me say everything, completely say all the way through before you get upset, okay? Women, specifically, this is really important, a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you are a woman, um, feminist culture is extremely dangerous when not thoroughly thought through. The, 
feminist culture, which is the air we breathe, goodness gracious, it's the, it is extremely dangerous when it is not thought through. Now, there are some great parts of feminist culture that I want to affirm that the world and God's common grace is pushing us towards, but there are parts of it. Hear me. Let me give you just an example of this. Let me finish what I'm going to say. Okay? Your body is not yours. In the kingdom of God, your body isn't yours. So for you to make the declaration, my body, my choice, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. Here's what I, if you are a woman of God who's following Jesus Christ, hear me, your body is his. It's his body. It's his choice. And so this, this means from the way you dress, this means who you give it away to. And yes, that does include in areas of abortion. All the other things set aside, hear me. If nothing else, the woman of God can't make that declaration because hear me, it's not your body. And it's true for men too. It's not their body, but there is a cultural pressure. It's almost like men get a pass. There's far more cultural pressure on, on the woman's body than there is a man. And hear me, in love and grace, what feminist culture is pushing to you, it's your body, your choice. And that's not a declaration for any believer but to you women, it's not. It's God's body. It's his choice. What, what does he want you to wear? What, what does he want, who does he want you to give that body away to? Who does he want you to be naked in front of? That baby inside of you, we can wrestle about it being autonomous. You guys know how I feel about abortion. But for you to do that is to go to the Lord and go, God, this is your body. What do you want me to do? It's his body. It's his choice. I have questions about that. I want to give room. If you have questions afterwards, please feel free to come up and ask me. I'd love to talk more about that as we change our perspective and motive. To the singles, very quickly, I've said this a hundred times, but this isn't even the issue in the world. I think the issue in the world almost, I think the world might be doing this better than the church when it comes to singles. Um, For some reason, you've drank the Kool-Aid and you believe that you've got to be married to serve Jesus. And because of this, you scroll the feeds and you feel like loneliness is all you experience. Loneliness, loneliness, loneliness. Everyone around you is getting married. Everyone's having kids. If you're not doing that, then you must not be serving Jesus. It's not only clear to not just Paul, but the very uh, God-man that we serve in Jesus Christ would say the complete opposite. Hear me, in love, you compromising to be married is not better than you being lonely and single for Jesus. Do you understand? Serve Jesus where you are, how you are. And I, I, listen, I don't know. I don't know what it's like every night to want to, I, Man, that is, I couldn't imagine, insanely difficult. But that is better than compromising just so you can be like everyone else. It's not, it's not okay. And that's not a way to be the citizen in the kingdom. Lastly, to everyone, a few things. Uh, I'll just rattle these off. Number one, social media does not control our life. As citizens of the kingdom of God, hear me, let the world around us, both in appearance and in time, let me just make this declaration if someone hasn't already told you. 95 to 99.9% of the time you spend on social media is a gigantic waste of time. It's a gigantic waste of time. And I'm talking to myself. There's never been a time where I've spent an hour on Facebook going, that was a good hour. That was a good hour. Never. <laughs> never. I, I always I go, what was I doing with my life right there? Always. And so, so hear me, it does not drive the way we dress. It does not drive the way we order our life in appearance and in time. That's the way of the world. That's not us. That's not us. Number two, to all of us, consumerism. Hear me when I say this. You need to be asking the question, does this purchase expand the kingdom of God? So I can boil down your finances if you are a believer in here very simply. Every dollar you make was made to give away. Every single penny 
is meant to give away. So when you pay your mortgage, this is how you're thinking. I made this money. I'm paying this mortgage because I believe God wants me here. I've prayed and I'm being, he wants me here so that I can minister to the neighbors around me so this house can be open. And listen, so this floor plan can get messy, so these counters can get dirty. I'm here because God has me here. Every dollar I make from my phone bills, my cable bills, the car payments, whatever you have, it is all to give away. Every single purchase needs to be filtered through this. Is this so that I can give? I've been given so that I can give. In Ephesians, let the thief no longer steal, but let him earn an honest wage so that he can give. That's what we're doing. Every dollar. We don't believe the lies of consumerism. That's the way of the world. The way of the kingdom of God is we are givers. We don't look forward to what we can get, but what we can give. Number three, allegiance. Be quickly, this is bogging us down, but it's worth it. Allegiance. Um, If being Republican gets in the way of following Jesus, then don't act like a Republican. If being Democrat gets in the way of following Jesus, then don't act like a Democrat. And this is going to sound like treason, But give me grace when I say this. If being American gets in the way of following Jesus, then don't act like an American. There there is no allegiance that you can have that is higher than the kingdom of God. And I love me some America. I love me some America. Everyone knows what's happening next year, the Olympics. And if you don't know yet what happens in the Myers household, the TV never comes off. And we're chanting USA. Anna will learn it. She's only three right now, but she will know who we chant for, right? And so the reality is, If there's an allegiance that detours us from following the ways of Jesus, it needs to die. And lastly, uh, time. Guys, this is a big one. Our time needs to look drastically different than the world. The way that we plan our time, the way that we, um, like, say it like this. Going into the weekend or going into a night, we're asking the question, is this next thing that I'm planning on my calendar going to push me towards Jesus or not? And that's the way we, we, we plan our vacations. That's the way that we plan our weeknights. That's the way that we plan our weekends. Because if we, we fall into the law of the world that there's me time. Listen, the way of the kingdom is always going, no, 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 listen. I'm dying daily to draw near to Jesus Christ. That's being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, this list may not make sense to you. And honestly, I'm not even trying to give it, it's not even a fully, like, complete list. My point is this. I want to stir affections for you to be able to process, what does it mean to, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do I need to do? For, maybe remove everything I just said. Maybe everything I just said is garbage. You need to listen in radical obedience to what God is saying to you. So let's finish with this. In verse 29, it says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now and here that I still have. So I want to break down this text, but there's uh, five little words in there that I want you to see in verse 29 before um, that I think is a mantra of what Paul's getting at for our life to be worthy of the gospel. It's for the sake of Christ. Um, So before we break down this text, Can I just say, up to this point, uh, can I encourage you not to hear everything I've said up to this point, to not be youthful, grandiose ideas? Can for a moment you stop thinking that being all in for Jesus is totally insane? So Candace and I um, are training right now for something called the Murph. Um, It's a mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and then run a mile again. My goal is to get under 40 minutes, which sounds insane right now. And so... Um, we did our first training thing. We were in California for our anniversary for a couple days, and um, we did the first thing. And hear me, we did a mile run. We did half the pull-ups, half the squats, and half the push-ups, and we did a mile run again. 
And keep in mind, when you do the Murph, everything I just said, you have to have a 25-pound vest on, 25-pound weight vest on, okay? So we did all that without a vest, and we got done with it, and I thought I was going to die, okay? And, and here's what I'm saying. I'm looking at the Murph now, and I'm going, that's insane. A 25, that's impossible. But look at me, look at me. Ask me in a year. Ask me in a year. Mark it on your calendar. Ask me in a year. Ask me in a year what I think of the Murph. Ask me in a year how many pull-ups I can do, how many push-ups I can do. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> the reality is if I just sit back and go, the Murph's insane. No one can do it. I'm never going to get off my butt and start doing this. And the beauty of the Christian discipline in God's common grace is it's the same as all other disciplines. As you look at something, you go, that's insane. Until you start that trek, you're going to continue to think, being all in every dime I spend, to actually open my mouth and talk to someone about Jesus, to fast for three days, to memorize the book of James, that's crazy. Until you step up, until you start training, until you allow yourself to not be lulled into silence, lulled into apathy, lulled into doing nothing, if you stop believing the lies of the enemy and are all in, you're never going to be, be able to make the declaration for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do this for the sake of Christ. I'm going to press on. For the sake of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm moving in this direction. Hear me. It's possible. To live a life worthy of the gospel is possible. Very, very real. Very real. Now, um, here's how... I'd like to finish to help you. If you were to, um, according to this text, if, uh, I, I read this text and I was trying to like see something. I was correlating what Philippians was doing and I'm trying to like navigate, Paul, what are you getting at? Spirit, what are you getting at in this first chapter? And so what I did is um, I put all of chapter one in something called a word cloud. So let me show you this word cloud real quick. Um, in this word cloud is every single word that appears in Philippians chapter one. And the larger the word, the more times it appears, okay? That makes sense. Now, if you were just to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, or you're honestly just to read chapter 1, just kind of lackadaisical, you would think words like suffering and imprisonment appear a lot. And you're right, they do. They do appear a lot. But what Paul does in word usage is communicates the same things that he's trying to communicate in connecting those words in sentences and paragraphs, meaning the emphasis of all of this, specifically as we read the back end of our, our, our uh, uh, text there in verses 29 and 30, that it's been granted to you that you would believe and for the sake of uh, uh, Christ suffer, for the sake of Christ that you would suffer, all this is about Jesus. So when you look at this, I and I was to say, identify the word imprisonment. Identify the word trouble. Identify the word anxious. Identify, like, you're looking at these words and you're going, I, I don't really see them. But you know what you do see? The most used words in all of Philippians 1 is Jesus Christ. Paul's goal in Philippians chapter 1 is to point our eyes Yes, 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 you see, but Jesus. Do, do you see that? But Jesus. Okay, 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 yes, suffering, but Jesus. It's for the sake of Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's been about Jesus, and guess what? It will be about Jesus. And if you can take that focus, your life will be about Jesus. 
If you, you can do this, your parenting will be about Jesus. Naturally, keeping your eyes on Jesus, seeing what he says, recognizing your body, recognizing your life, recognizing being a neighbor, your job, your children, are all for the sake of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's where our focus is to be. When we put this, this word cloud up, the, the, the words that are sticking out are Jesus, Christ, God, and dare I even say will. It's his will. It's what he wants to do. My prayer would be that as we process this, we don't, according to 2 Timothy 4, heap up teachers for ourselves to tickle our ears. As Platt even said in the beginning of, of uh, this text, that we would not uh, const, uh, contort the gospel, that it would lay into our life real easy. No, 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 hear me. We are called to radical obedience, and it's not just to hear it on the mountaintop. But this is a thoroughness of life that we are every single day to be all in. I pray that we would run well. Let's pray. I'm going to pray Acts chapter 20, verse 24 over us. Lord, let this be our mantra, that we would not count our life as any value nor precious to ourselves, only that we would finish the course and the ministry that we've received from you to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God, may that be true. That we not count our life as any value to ourselves, but we would look to you, we would honor you, that we would recognize if we're going to live, it's going to be for you. And if we die, then that's only gain because we're with you. We're going to recognize that our perspective, it needs to change. Our motives, they, they need to be um, altered. That they need to be trained in the direction of doing things for you and not for ourselves, or not for Instagram or not for uh, the people around us, but for you. Help us train our motives so that our life would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in your name, pray Jesus. Amen.